Welcome to Philosophers on Medicine. Side effects include having your mind blown. I'm Jonathan Fuller. In medicine, consensus statements abound. They're issued by government agencies and professional societies as the official word on the science and practice of medicine. But what role does expert consensus serve in medicine? To summarize the evidence? To deliberate over decision-making? Or to command change? In an era of evidence-based medicine, is expert consensus going extinct, or is it perhaps more important now than ever? Philosophers studying the social context of medical knowledge may have some answers. Today's consultation is with philosopher Miriam Solomon, professor of philosophy at Temple University. Miriam Solomon, thanks for joining us. Hello. We're going to be talking about expert consensus in medicine, which has a history. So why don't you start by telling us what were the first modern medical consensus conferences and what kind of a process did they follow? Well, I think the first ever consensus conferences, never mind the first modern ones, began in the 1970s at NIH. They were an invented process of producing a statement about the state of knowledge for some new intervention. So it was something about which the general practitioner didn't know whether or not it worked. For example, I think the use of corticosteroids in pregnancy was one of those. And they gathered together a panel of medically expert individuals, and they were run as a kind of science court. The panel is served as judge and jury, and they brought in leading researchers as witnesses, and the question and answer periods went for about two days, and then at the end, the panelists got together and wrote a consensus statement that was then disseminated. So they were really choreographed, and they had a set format. They had always between 10 and 20 people, and they were designed to accelerate the process of technology transfer. That's sort of putting it in 21st century language, but that was what was happening in the 70s as well with the expansion of medical research after World War II. In recent decades, there seems to be a growth in the number of consensus conferences, or at least in the number of consensus guidelines that various bodies produce. What might explain this increase in the number of guidelines and consensus processes in medicine? Well, the way I see it, it started with NIH. And then everybody jumped on the bandwagon and said, oh, this is utterly fabulous. Medical consensus conferences became the standard means of assessment of complex evidence for some 20 years, both nationally and internationally. Then evidence-based medicine came along. And evidence-based medicine is critical of knowledge supposedly produced by expert consensus. So there's a little conflict between those two. And I would say that most conferences that produce guidelines and so on and so forth don't use the word consensus as much. You might find an evidence-based consensus. I mean, you, you find other words. That is the classical model of knowledge produced by consensus that NIH began and that was taken up is now deemed not sufficient for establishing firm knowledge. 
What are some of the reasons why anyone would think that it would be worthwhile to gather together a group of experts and to deliberate and come to a group consensus? In other words, what might be thought to be the virtues of a process like that? Well, uh, when we meet in groups and we feel we work well together, we correct one another's errors, we fill in the blanks in one another's knowledge, that together we can do more than we can individually. And that's the ideal of group process. Group process isn't always that good, but, but that's what was hoped. It was hoped that you could magnify the power of one expert by having many experts in the room. And when the experts agreed with one another, that was further evidence that they had the right answer. If they disagreed, then that could be problematic, and then there would have to be more discussion. And there was a hope with the early consensus conferences that they would talk through their disagreement and find agreement at the end. But thinking about this, it was a kind of odd hope, because usually when scientists disagree, they don't sit around a table and decide what the right theory is. They usually do more experiments. They go out into the world. They don't believe that they can decide around a table. So consensus conferences were not terribly good at settling controversial issues. However, they were good at stating a consensus if one already existed. That's interesting. So you've argued basically that although we called in the early days these processes consensus conferences, that in fact most of the time the role of these conferences wasn't to establish a consensus. In fact, by the time the conference was held, usually a consensus had formed in the community. Mm -hmm. So then what was the main function of these conferences? I think the main function was dissemination, getting the knowledge out there and getting it out with an authoritative statement where people's names were associated with them, where you know experts had put their stamp on it and where the NIH had the imprimatur on it. So the NIH consensus conference process has made this statement. That, that's a very powerful statement of medical authority. If the NIH says that, you know, hip replacements are a good technology, then it often fed into things like insurance reimbursement and so on and so forth. So I see the role of consensus conferences was mostly about dissemination and less about settling controversy. They were just not good at settling controversy. And honestly, I don't think there are good ways to settle controversy about a scientific matter around a table. What about the non-scientific elements that a consensus conference could in theory discuss? So not the elements around what particular body of scientific evidence has to say about whether drug A works better than drug B, but what kind of recommendations we should make to clinical practitioners about what they should do on the basis of that evidence. Yeah, if what we want is more policy statements and ethics type statements and statements about what should be funded and covered and so on, the consensus process might well be thought to be appropriate for that. Certainly, that's the direction that medical consensus conferences took in Europe. NIH was not interested in ethics or policy. It saw itself as a scientific organization and just concerned with the science. But the European medical organizations that adapted the NIH program frequently asked questions about, you know, should this be provided under national health care? Or what ages should women have mammograms? 
which involve a trade-off of benefits and harms. So we often put together panels to decide policy in non-scientific areas. So maybe it's appropriate for this application of medicine to society. So if the scientific issues are settled, then maybe it's appropriate to have a community group or an expert group come together and talk about whether this is something society wants to spend its money on and so on and so forth. And that certainly happened in Europe. Interestingly, it wasn't expert consensus. There's no reason to have scientific experts if what you're discussing is ethics. And sometimes it was members of the public. Uh, Sometimes it was experts on legal or ethical matters that came together. So, yeah, when we're talking about policy issues and ethical issues, the consensus conference model is very live and still used a great deal. That's what a panel is, you know, when they put together a government panel to look into something. The uh, Institute of Medicine has a lot of these kinds of panels, and they don't confine themselves to the scientific issues. They also look at the broader issues. To the extent that those broader issues can be discussed around the table, you can do ethics from an armchair. It would be appropriate to do it that way. I'm wondering, I mean, not just about whether one can do ethics from an armchair, but whether the kinds of mixed factual, normative, or value-laden decisions that a lot of clinical uh, guideline panels are tasked to decide are best done by this process of gathering together experts that are mostly experts in medicine and the science, when the end goal is to kind of produce not just a consensus on the the body of evidence, but also recommendations for clinical practice. Right. Um, Well, there's certainly a good argument for having frontline clinicians participate. There's a good argument for having patient representatives. There's a good argument for having representatives from other healthcare professions, such as nursing. Those could all improve both the deliberation in the room because of the different perspectives and different knowledges that different individuals have, but it will also contribute to more acceptance of the product. If patients know that patients were involved in putting this technology together and in deciding how it should be applied, that's very different from it being imposed on them by a group of experts. So it's important both for the process of deliberation and for the uptake afterwards. What have philosophers had to say about the possible merits or even possible demerits of this process of group deliberation as a means of coming to some sort of consensus or decision, whether a decision or a consensus on a scientific matter or a non-scientific matter? Well, interestingly, there's a lot of discussion of group deliberation in political philosophy. And in the tradition of roles, the idea is that you sit behind the veil of ignorance and as a group deliberate the kind of society you would like to have while ignorant of what exactly your role in that society will be so that you make all the positions in that society ones that are okay to have. I think the practice of democratic rational deliberation has really taken over from a more ancient practice of deferral to one great person. So knowledge from authority used to be, you read it in Aristotle, therefore it has high status. 
I think knowledge from authority now is thought of more democratically and is thought of as knowledge that the experts agree upon after this rational process of deliberation. And deliberation, good deliberation, requires equality between the people who do it rather than the exercise of power of one over them. So it's an ideal that's democratic and that appeals also to ideas of rationality with the idea that we can all reflect and we can correct one another's errors and so on. Group rational deliberation is mostly celebrated in philosophy and thought of as a good thing. That said, there's the beginnings of some questioning of that. It turns out that group rational deliberation can go astray under fairly typical conditions, such as if there is a leader who exerts a lot of power, or if there are individuals who have less status in society, women, people of color, whose remarks are not given the weight that they should be given in that setting. The setting really replays the inequity within society. And so when groups work very well, they may produce a great product, but they don't always work very well. At the worst end, there are phenomena such as groupthink in which individuals defer to the position that's seen as the one that the leaders take, even when they have private doubts. Group process works much better when people are encouraged to dissent. Earlier, you mentioned evidence-based medicine and nowadays clinical practice guidelines, which are often the result of consensus conferences are practically synonymous with evidence-based guidelines. How has evidence-based medicine transformed the consensus conference process? Well, a lot of people think that evidence-based medicine grew out of the one of the ways in which consensus conferences failed. What consensus conferences were supposed to do is consider all the evidence for an intervention and aggregate it. But they never said how they should aggregate it. They just said that the panelists should read all the experiments, all the studies, and then they should decide kind of where the weight of the evidence was. That's a rather qualitative kind of thing. And not surprisingly, when matters were controversial, individuals often found fault with the ways in which particular consensuses had formed, thinking that they'd weighed some evidence more highly than it should have been weighed, or they'd ignored something else. And the idea arose, wouldn't it be great if we had a more formal way of assessing the evidence when it's complex, when there are different experiments and they sometimes reach different conclusions? And that really is what evidence-based medicine is about. It's about seeking high-quality studies and about learning how to put together the results of different studies to make an overall assessment of the evidence for a particular intervention. So instead of doing it seat of the pants in the consensus conference, the idea was to do it formally with methodologists who knew how to do statistics and could combine the results of studies in formal ways. And when they didn't do that, they could still grade studies in fairly formal and standardized ways. 
if evidence-based medicine has brought us these more sophisticated methodologies for aggregating evidence, does that eliminate the need for expert consensus or consensus conferences in medicine? Well, you know, I asked myself that question when evidence-based medicine became really dominant. The consensus conference was threatened and they might have disappeared, but they didn't. And I think what happened was that consensus conferences certainly went on board with evidence-based medicine, knowing that they needed to incorporate that, an evidence-based review in order to be seen as scientifically respectable. But then, yes, the question comes, well, if they do have that evidence-based review that happens before they meet, what is there left for the people to do? And, well, it could have been that one of the evidence-based practice centers that assess evidence could have just issued the results straight from the methodologist. Nobody seemed to want that. People seemed to want to humanize the results, to put names and faces of medical experts on the results and the recommendations. Just saying that the methodologists had combined the different studies and come up with the result wasn't enough authority to persuade people to use it. And that may be because we're suspicious of statisticians. So it's like they wanted another level. And the other level was this human level of people sitting around a table discussing it. I've often wondered whether we need that and whether or where we could do without that, and whether it's a ritualistic thing that humans are not willing to give up. That's interesting because that makes it seem like the main function of consensus conferences in an era of evidence-based medicine is purely rhetorical, to persuade the medical community to accept the conclusions that are already based on the evidence. Is that right? I think you could say that, but a rhetorical function is an important function. I wouldn't put that down. You have to persuade people to get uptake. And there have been continuing problems with uptake of new knowledge. And, you know, it takes 10 years or a new medical intervention to be disseminated through the community. And people have talked about wanting to make that go faster. And, you know, if the IOM can publish something that has authority, that backs it, and especially if people recognize some of the names, they're going to be more likely to take it seriously more quickly. One of the areas that evidence-based medicine expanded into was, in fact, formalizing the process of guideline development to an extent. For instance, using grades of evidence to assess how reliable the evidence was and also how trustworthy the recommendations are that the evidence Mm -hmm. is based upon. And yet, as some people have pointed out, there are many possible formal processes one could choose from. So we could have had the process that ended up resulting, which is known as the grades of recommendation process out of McMaster in Canada. Or we could have had a different evidence ranking schemes. There are multiple possibilities that we could have ended up with and that we have to choose between. And at the end of the day, the working group that developed the grade approach had to come to some sort of consensus about Mm -hmm. what process they were going to follow for grading the evidence and the recommendations. So that makes it seem that, you know, even if we're basing our recommendation process on this formal approach, the approach itself is based on expert consensus. So we wind up with expert consensus in the end anyway. Well, or it plays a role in the end. It's not eliminable. 
that's a kind of ironic twist of this material. And I think there are good reasons and bad reasons for developing particular methods of grading the evidence. Grade itself follows a fairly standard way of putting the randomized controlled trials at the top. But what I do recall, and I may be misremembering some of the details, is that some systems recognize that observational trials can produce more reliable results in some randomized control trials, even though a lot of evidence hierarchies separate them and just put the randomized control trials at the top. And most of the evidence hierarchies have been designed on the possible sources of bias. So if something has many possible sources of bias, then it's low on the evidence hierarchy. And if there are only a few possible sources of bias, it's much higher. And I've often wondered whether actual bias might be more relevant than possible sources of bias as a way of making the hierarchy. So, you know, turns out that observational trials are about as reliable as randomized controlled trials. There have been exceptions where that's not been the case, but there have also been many cases where randomized controlled trials have not been able to be replicated. Randomized controlled trials have not lived up to the expectations that methodologists have had of them. So I'm um, a bit more pragmatic about how I think a hierarchy should be constructed. And I think it shouldn't be on possible bias, but actual track record. I think an upshot of this discussion seems to be that whatever advances we've made in guideline development in the process according to which we convene these conferences, but there still seems to be some role for expert judgment retained. Yes, I think that's true. One of the reasons that's true is that in order to organize a collective enterprise, which is what scientific medicine is, you need to have some shared standards of evaluation. This is something that Alan Langino would emphasize. So if we're all working with different evidence hierarchies, then we can't compare what we're doing. And there are benefits and harms to most ways of doing it. So it makes sense for us to settle on something so that at least we're all working in terms of the same units, just like, you know, we settle on miles or kilometers as a unit of distance. And that's a consensus decision. So there is a certain arbitrariness in establishing standards. Well, I'm only one person, not a group, but my consensus is that this has been very interesting. So okay. thank you. Thank you. To hear more Philosophers on Medicine, visit www.philosophersonmedicine.com or find us on iTunes or Google Play.